What is good, everybody? Yo, welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast, where we help real people with real problems know the real God. Hey, if you enjoy this message, share this with your friends because the gospel is not meant to be kept to ourselves. And there is a link down below if you would like to give. Your gifts really do help this podcast reach more people all around the world. I hope you enjoy this message. Okay, okay. What is good, everybody? It's your boy. Look, we're going through Romans chapter 7 today, verses 1 through 12. Normally, I have like a little intro into what we're about to be talking about. But verse 1 actually leads us into some pretty interesting stuff that we can talk about in regards to Romans chapter 7. So we're just going to hop straight into it. We're going to start in verse 1. Let's get it. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So this is something that we need to point out, that coming off of Romans 6, Paul is addressing the Roman church as a whole. There's actually multiple times throughout the book of Romans where Paul will start to address just the Gentiles, or he'll start to address just the Jewish believers, or he will address them as a whole. So maybe that can be a little homework for y'all. Go throughout the book of Romans, and as you're reading, look out for some of these contextual clues that switches up the intended audience for each chapter, each passage. But in terms of Romans 7, Paul is now talking to the Jewish believers. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. And we know from reading throughout Romans that those who had the law were the Jewish believers. The Gentiles didn't have the law. So Paul is speaking directly to the Jewish believers. And you could imagine that at this point, Phoebe, who's reading this letter, is looking right at these believers while presenting this letter. Oh, I just realized we have not talked about Phoebe, I don't think. I don't think we've talked about Phoebe yet throughout our whole journey throughout the book of Romans. So let me break down what Phoebe's doing and why I said that Phoebe's reading this letter. Because we have to think, how are the Roman people receiving this letter? Like, how how are they receiving it? Well, well, we know for certain that they are not all reading it for themselves. It's not like we have it now, right, where we can just whip open our Bible and, and we can all read together. No, no, no. This would have been just one, maybe two letters, maybe an extra copy, but most likely just one because the writing equipment at that time was expensive. And this being one of Paul's biggest letters, this would not have been cheap. So Paul would have wanted someone that he trusted to not only deliver the letter, but to also read it. Because there's a lot of nuance in what Paul is talking about. And you know this, if you've been following along, there's a lot of little things that could be explained, that could kind of be clarified. And Paul would need someone who is familiar with what he is trying to get across to be able to present this letter effectively, to present it to the people who need it the most, and to do it in a way that um, mirrors what Paul is writing. So Paul gave this letter to Phoebe. And she would have read this publicly, out loud to the Roman church. And this wouldn't have been weird or or uncommon. Public readings were actually very common during this time, especially the letters in the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we learn that Paul has sent Phoebe to the Roman churches to deliver and perform this letter. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Syncreae. 
that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Okay, so Paul commends Phoebe to the Roman church. Now, the word commend here could be translated a few different ways. It could be translated as recommended, presented, or introduced. So on a basic level, Paul is presenting or introducing Phoebe to the Roman people as the letter bearer. And Paul would have already known Phoebe. He would have met with her, probably even worked with Phoebe while he was writing this letter in Corinth. And he tells us that she is a servant or deacon in other translations of the church in Sincrea, which was located in Corinth as well. So Paul would have already known Phoebe. He would have already known that she had great character, that she loved God, and that she served the church to the best of her ability. And so it's really interesting knowing this to see how Paul upholds the importance of a woman in a time where women were viewed as lesser to men. That's really, really important to point out. He even tells them to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So she's not just some rando person. Paul is letting the Roman church know and letting us know that Phoebe is important. She's important to the message of the gospel. He also tells them to help her in whatever she may need. So clearly, Paul views Phoebe in high regard since he is entrusting her to deliver this letter and to present it to the Roman church. So all of that to say that when Paul says, hey, I'm speaking to those who know the law, Phoebe presenting this letter would have probably looked over at the Jewish believers while she's reading this to let them know, hey, Paul wants you to understand what he is about to say. So Paul continues. Now, what is Paul wanting them to understand? He says, look, in verse 2, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, why does Paul use marriage out of all the different commandments, the 613 laws that were given? Why does Paul pick out marriage as an example to use over all the other laws? Well, I think Paul has a very specific reason for using this. And the reason is that the covenant between God and Israel, that old covenant, the law, it was commonly explained in the language of marriage. It was explained as, as if it was a marriage covenant, as if it was more than just a partnership. It was a marriage between God and his chosen people. I've picked out a few verses that beautifully point out that God viewed the old covenant as a marriage covenant with the people of Israel. We find a few in Hosea. Uh, we're going to look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 3 first. It says, But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. He goes on in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So he is pointing out that Israel's rebellion is like a woman prostituting herself in a marriage covenant. 
Jeremiah 31, 31. Here's another one. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So already, and and, and I'm just picking out a few because there is a lot. Already, we're seeing the comparison of a marriage covenant with the covenant that God made with Israel. And this last one I want to read is one of the most beautiful explanation of God's love in a marriage context towards Israel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's long, but I want to read it because I feel like y'all will love it. It's Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 through 13. God says, on the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut and you were never washed, rubbed with salt and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field and left to die. But I came by and saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live, and I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. Your breast became full and your body hair grew, but you were still naked. And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I have made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you and washed off your blood. I rubbed fragrant oils into your skin. I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk, beautifully embroidered and sandals made of fine goatskin leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklaces, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were made of fine living and costly fabric, and you were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, choice flour, honey, and olive oil, and you became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. Isn't that beautiful? That that's that's God's bird's eye view of Israel's state before God chose them and made the covenant and then what they look like when God's sovereign love allowed them to live in his presence. I mean, you can even see in verse 8 he says, "Look, I declared my marriage vows." So it is very very clear that God viewed the old covenant in the same context that we should view our marriage covenants in in our normal lives. And I know this episode isn't about divorce and the importance of marriage, but seeing how God viewed and upheld his marriage covenant with Israel and how seriously he took it, it's obvious that marriage is the most important covenant that can be made, and it should not be broken without serious reason. So I point out all these verses to ask the question, so why is Paul using marriage as the example for the law, not binding once a person dies? Because that that was his first premise. He started off in verse one saying, look, the law is not binding on a person if they are not alive. If they're dead, the the, the bond of the covenant is no longer binding. So what Paul does is in the next verses, he gives us the example of a marriage covenant between man and woman. As long as both parties are alive, that covenant is binding and cannot be broken. So how can Paul 
so easily expect these Jewish believers to abandon their marriage covenant with God? How can he do that? Well, as Paul explains, he says, if death is what releases one from the bond of the marriage covenant, and Paul, like he explained in Romans 6, that we are dead to sin since we have joined Christ in his death. So if we have joined Christ in his death, that means that we have died with Christ. And as Paul points out in Romans 6, that once Christ rose from the dead, we also rose with Christ. That means that we are living a new life. Our old way, our old life is dead. So what does this mean for the bonds of the old covenant? Oh, I love the Bible. Paul's theology is so deep. It means for the Jewish believers that we are set free from the old law, the old covenant, since we have died with Christ to join in a new marriage covenant with Christ. Oh, that's so cool. That is so dope. And you might say, but Paul's example of marriage says that if the man dies, then the woman's released from the covenant. He doesn't say that if the woman dies as well. And and that's a good point, right? Because God does point out in the Old Testament verses that we just quoted that, you know, he's the husband, right? And, And we would be the queen. We would be the bride. So how do we get off the hook from this old covenant? Well, didn't Jesus die fulfilling the law? If Jesus died fulfilling the law, which would be the old covenant, then it follows that we are now free to enter into the new, better covenant through Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. I, I hope y'all are tracking with me. If if that's confusing, rewind this and play it again. But man, that is deep. Paul's theology is so, so, so deep. What is he getting at? He's saying, I'm a paraphrase. He's basically saying to the Jewish believers, don't worry about betraying or breaking the law. Don't worry about betraying the old covenant because you want to follow Jesus. Because that covenant only applies to those who are living in the same state to which they entered. But you being renewed by Jesus Christ, who has died, and you have died as well to your old life and been given a new life, you no longer have to worry about being bound to the old covenant because you have died to that. And you are alive in the new covenant with Jesus. So in short, Paul started off looking right at the Jewish believers. And he's saying, you are not cheating on God. You are not being adulterous or breaking the old covenant by accepting Jesus as your king. And Paul basically extends this idea into verse 4. He says, look, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit. So Paul is reiterating, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. That old marriage covenant, you have died through the body of Christ. So you are no longer bound to that covenant because you entered into a new one with Jesus. Now, I want to focus on something that Paul says here. In this last statement in verse in verse 4, it can be overlooked, but I want to focus on this. Paul says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Isn't that something? Notice this. Don't, don't overlook it. Notice it. Notice who is bearing the fruit and who is receiving it. It is us who is bearing or producing the fruit, and it's God who's supposed to be receiving it. 
This might throw you for a loop because in modern Western Christianity, how we would have wished Paul said this, we would have wished that Paul would have said, in order that God may bear fruit for you. Oh, wouldn't that sound good? That would preach, wouldn't it? That would sound good. But Paul isn't concerned about God upholding his side of this new marriage covenant. He's not concerned about that. He knows that God's good. He knows that if God said it, he's going to do it. And God's going to continue to produce good fruit for those who follow him. He's not worried about God bearing fruit for us. But Paul focuses on us bearing fruit for God. Why? Why us? Well, I mean, it would make sense that the the group who has constantly failed in this marriage covenant, the group who has constantly not produced fruits in the same way would have to be the one that now takes the responsibility of bearing the fruit. Imagine imagine it like this. This is how I like to put it when I, I talk about the marriage covenant between God and his people. It would look something like a husband or a wife trying to keep the marriage afloat. And one is working hard to please the other, going out of their way to support and love them, sacrificing their time, energy, and resources so the other can live comfortably. And all the while, the opposite party refuses to acknowledge them, talk to them. On top of that, they are seeing other people and they're blaming the faithful spouse for all of their problems and shortcomings. That sounds like a raw deal. That sounds like something that you would not want to be a part of, but that's analogous to our covenant with God. God is the spouse in that story that's doing everything that they need to do to love and support and pour in and bear fruit into the marriage covenant. And we are the party that that has no consideration for the other. We are the party that says, bless me, bless me, give me, give me, do for me, do for me, and never take the time to bear fruit into the marriage covenant we have with God. So Paul tells the Jewish believers that since they are dead to the old covenant, which they constantly broke, and they have new life in a new covenant with Jesus, that they should do all they can to bear good fruit within this covenant for God. Paul is calling them out. I know it doesn't seem like it. It seems, you know, nice, right? Like, yeah, in order that we may bear fruit for God. No, no, no. Paul is calling them out. He's saying, uphold your side of this marriage covenant. Paul is trying to get them to see that the failures of your ancestors in the wilderness during the exile, the failures of your ancestors to keep the law, the failures of yourself to keep the law, God's given you a second chance, not being bound to that old covenant, but you cannot walk into this new covenant expecting to not bear fruit. You need to uphold your side of this covenant. It's not a one-way street anymore. You have new life. And because of that, just like Paul said in Romans 6, because you're dead to sin, you should not want to live in it anymore. Because you have this new life through Jesus Christ, you should want to do all you can do to pour into this covenant. Paul is calling them out. 
And he tells them how they can do it in verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Interesting. Aroused by the law. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Aroused by the law. Don't mistake that statement to mean that the law was evil or that God gave uh, the law to Israel so he can arouse their sin and you know kill them. That, that, that's not the point of the law. What this statement shows is the depth of our sinful nature. It shows how deep this goes. See, the very presence of order and rule aroused our sinful nature to disobey them. And you might ask, well, if the law held us captive, because that's what Paul goes on to say. He says, it held us captive. Then how is the law not bad? Like it, it should follow, right? That the law is bad because it held us captive. No, 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 no. The law itself is not bad. And Paul tells us this coming up in verse seven, but the very fact that the law gave order and guidelines, which were good, it was still enough to keep our sinful nature captive to its desire to break what is good. So just because we pervert something that is good, it does not mean that it's bad. And the law was good. It was good. But because of our sinful nature, we were aroused by it to sin even more. and We became captive to that. So Paul tells them that they need to bear fruit for God, upholding their end of the new covenant, and he tells them how to do it by pointing out that because of the old covenant, they were aroused to sin and be held captive by it. But now that they have this release from the old law, they need to embrace the new way of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. And there's a lot of different ways that we could probably interpret this, but just for the sake of this episode, I would say the new way of the Spirit could just easily be summed up by living in the example of Jesus Christ, living in Christiformity, conforming to Christ. That would be the new way of the Spirit. Paul continues on in verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, there's a lot. There's a lot here. We're going to break this down. So Paul points out some interesting things about the law. Modern Christians might ask, what good is the law or the Old Testament to me anyway? Because we've been told countless times that we're no longer under the old covenant. It doesn't apply anymore. So you might think that we can just ditch the old covenant, right? Ditch the Old Testament. We're no longer under it. It doesn't matter. No, 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 no. The law still serves an important purpose because it's still God's word. The law works as a teacher for us now, teaching us the character of God. 
It's laws like you shall not covet that Paul makes an example of here that shows us that God in his nature does not want his creation living in a state of lust for other things or other people. You learn moral standards that come straight from God. Although we are no longer bound to the punishments and restraints of the law in the old covenant, we can still see God's instruction through his character in the law. And Paul points out why our sinful human nature did not mesh with the law. Because in this nature, as Paul says, sin seized an opportunity. Now, I want to be honest. I was actually confused and I didn't know how to understand verse 9 when Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Because it seems like, oh, life was great, right? Like, like Paul was alive. He was actually, you know, doing good. And then the law came and the law just ruined everything because the law is bad. And so I was trying to understand what is Paul saying? And I found this really good quote by Albert Barnes. And he explains verse 9 so well. So I wanted to quote this and read it to you. He says, Paul had a certain kind of peace. He deemed himself secure. He was free from the convictions of conscience and the agitations of alarm. The state to which he refers here must be doubtless that to which he himself alludes elsewhere. When he deemed himself to be righteous, depending on his own works and esteeming himself to be blameless, it means that he was then free from the agitations and alarms, which he afterwards experienced when he was brought under conviction for sin. Okay, so keeping that in mind, when Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, Paul really felt alive because he was free to literally do whatever he wanted apart from the law. You had no responsibility. You had no moral guidelines. Everything went. Anything goes without the law. So in a sense, Paul was alive, but he wasn't truly alive. Doing those things were still wrong, even if the law wasn't there. But Paul had no conscious ability to understand what was right and wrong. So that's what he meant by I was once alive. And then once once the law came into place, it convicted him because he was now able to consciously understand his actions and what was good and what was wrong now that he had the law. And this whole idea of being alive apart from the law, it, it's interesting in our modern context, right? Because sometimes I hear non-believers um, say that the reason that they don't like Christianity is because all the rules, right? You may have heard this before. Oh, it's so restrictive. The Bible's so restrictive. I feel like I just can't live how I want to live. And I feel like I can live a better life and experience more without the restrictions given by God's word. But this very sentiment mirrors Paul's statement that before the law or before God's revealed nature, Paul was alive. He was free to do whatever he wanted no matter how destructive it was to his well-being. But when the law was acknowledged, in Paul's heart, he quickly realized that his sinful nature exposed by the law led to death. And that same truth goes for everybody, everybody, even those who willfully reject the gospel because they feel it's restrictive. It allows them to have this sort of feeling of freedom where they can live and do and be and say and go wherever they want. But in reality, the things that are revealed in God's nature are good for us. 
they may feel restrictive. It may feel like, oh, God's not letting me do all these fun things. But in the long run, even in moments where we can't see it, God's revealed nature given to us by the example of Jesus Christ is not, restri- is not restrictive. It's freeing. It allows you to live a free life. And that's the end of this episode, at least. For Romans chapter 7, we're going to hit up the end of Romans chapter 7 next week. So I will be looking forward to seeing y'all next week. All right. Peace out. Have a great day.